CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. And so we're reaching the end of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, glad to have you with us for the show today. We're also coming uh, to the end of the first week of uh, early voting, which has been uh, so far an unqualified success in terms of the number of people have turned out, who have turned out. Not so much in some cases in terms of the technology. Um, yesterday, <laughs> this is an astonishing figure. More than 157,000 Georgians voted in person at polling places across the state. Uh, There were especially big jumps in Gwinnett and Henry counties, uh, which we assume means that we're going to see a lot of suburban votes turn out. And, of course, we know the metro suburbs are where we're going to be looking to see the inroads that Democrats might be making. So far, let me give you the figures from the Secretary of State's office. Um, 1,124,828 total ballots have been cast. 540, 578,000 of them have been cast in person. 584,250 are the number of ballots, of mail-in ballots that have been returned. There's still some million ballots, really outstanding mail-in ballots, So we'll continue to watch that. There were some uh, improvements in terms of how some of the counties, again, in Metro Atlanta particularly, were handling the long wait times that were caused partly uh, because of uh, uh, problems with the computer equipment in terms of processing voter IDs. Uh, But at least in Cobb, Fulton, and Gwinnett, the counties set up websites so that voters could go online, much like you do if you're heading to the airport, you could look to see what the wait time was at different polling places, and it gave you a sense of when, where you might want to vote and when you might want to vote. So some progress in that regard. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. In the meantime, uh, yesterday, of course, Joe Biden And President Trump had competing town hall meetings, one on ABC, the other on NBC. We're going to talk about what happened in those. And Kelly Leffler is back in the headlines because of her endorsement yesterday by the QAnon theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene. So we're going to talk about all that and a lot more on the show today with our panel, Jim Galloway. Lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my partner on the Monday and Friday editions of the show. And, of course, you read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the um, newspaper itself, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Jim, have you already got your Sunday column set to go, or is it posted? It is. Well, if not, can you tell us a little about it? It is is posted, and it is about kind of an update from... uh, from, uh, uh, the researchers over at Clemson University on the disinformation campaigns that are being waged by Russia and 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 a host of other countries on on uh, American politics. Oh, okay. Well, I look forward to that. Um, Sam Burmis Dawes or uh, Amelia Brock. Maybe we should post uh, that so that people can read it even before the Sunday paper uh, hits the newsstands. Um, We are also joined today by uh, Sam Olins. He, of course, is the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, and before that served as a Cobb County Commission chairman. And uh, Sam, we're always glad to have you on the show. How are you today? Very well, Bill. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Sam's in a car on his cell phone, so at times we're going to have to monitor the quality of the sound. But regardless of that, Sam is always great as a panelist on the show. Also, uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, is uh, with us today. Hey, Michael, before I'm getting, well, let me go ahead and introduce Karen Owen, Professor Karen Owen, political science professor from the University of West Georgia. Um, um, And Karen, thank you for being here today. I, I, I kind of want to immediately, before I talk to you, Karen, go to Michael in terms of election information, because, Michael, we should start by saying that you uh, 
uh, as CEO of the county, you are not in charge of the DeKalb County election uh, in any way. I got that right? That's correct. That's correct. It's uh, administered by a separate board. Okay. That said, your, your county board, your election board, now the chair of the Democratic Party of DeKalb County, are really at each other. The chair of the Democratic Party wants to uh, get rid of the members of the election board because uh, he says they've made a mess of voting in DeKalb County again. Do you have a dog in that fight, uh, Michael? No, yeah, just to clarify a little bit, Bill, he is calling for the resignation of the chair, uh, Mr. Sam Tillman, and the director, uh, yes. Ms. Erica Hamilton. That, that just, uh, just a point of, of clarification. Uh, my focus is on ensuring that the Cap County voters have fair and free and convenient access to the polls. Uh, we're two, not three weeks away from an election, and we really have to come together right now to get through this election season. Long term, obviously, we have to sit down, we being county leaders and election board members, and talk about the future of the Board of Elections, the office of registration and election, and how do we move forward? Well, there, there's been, a, a, in addition to concerns about long lines all over the county, uh, there has now been uh, some question as to whether there's a disparity in where the long lines are. Uh, there are some who are saying that it's in the southern parts of the county, African-American parts of the county, where people are waiting in much, much longer to be able to vote than is happening up in the northern part of the county. But, but that contention is in some dispute. Can you shed any light on that for us? Yeah, there are conflicting reports. Uh, I personally have received reports from voters who were celebrating um, the fact that they were able to get in and out in a very short period of time. Uh, commissioners have raised concerns about long wait times at some locations in southeast DeKalb. So we just have to look at it. I can't independently confirm or, or disaffirm any of the things that's been said right now, uh, but we just have to continue to uh, move forward at this point. Uh, you know, we, it, it, the election is upon us, and we have to, we just have to, uh, get this right and recognize that we're conducting an election in the middle of a novel virus, a pandemic, and and an election of great interest to voters. So all of these things are converging at one point and at one moment with a brand new voting system. So we just have to be careful in terms of assigning the blame for any particular delay. That was one of the things coming out of Gwinnett, just watching the news, the director there was saying that the issue was the machinery itself and not uh, what was uh, taking place by the elections office or election workers. So you got to sift through all of the uh, static to try to come to some understanding as to what is actually transpiring. Jim, we cannot seem to go through an election in 2020, given the pandemic is upon us. That makes a difference. But Georgia continues to struggle, it, it, it seems, to have a smoothly running election that gives everybody a chance to vote in a reasonable period of time. Yeah, and and what you what you have to remember is that is that I mean, DeKalb County aside, you've got a you've got a Republican statewide administration, and in many cases you have democratically controlled local operations, and and getting them to 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 mesh to work together uh, can be a little bit of a of, of a challenge. And uh, I mean, I actually I'm I'm a pretty encouraged by what I'm seeing in Fulton County right now, which is which is always the kind of the the the, the trouble spot. But uh, it looks like this the uh, arena voting is 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 has turned out to be a pretty good idea in in in, in, in during a coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, Sam Olins, when when you were chairman of the Cobb County Commission, you knew how to work in a bipartisan way with people. I cannot imagine that you, uh, when Jim Galloway suggests that maybe a Republican Secretary of State's office and Democrats running the counties in Metro uh, are maybe not able to work together in in a positive way to resolve problems. I, that's a troubling thing to hear, Sam. 
Yes, but I mean, candidly, these issues have uh, been around for a long time, irrespective of which party uh, was in power. I mean, I remember when uh, President Obama was first running uh, for president, uh, Shirley Franklin and I had numerous discussions because there were there were the same exact issues. Um, of course, now you've got the pandemic. Now you've got uh, record turnout. Um, but but by definition, this this has not been easy for Georgia for for many years. Uh, Karen Owen, uh, let me bring you into the conversation. I apologize for making you wait a little. Um, one of the things we're tracking, of course, is the demographics of who has been voting uh, early. And um, what we've noted every day this week, and it has not changed, is that women voters are outpacing men by about 13 percent in casting their ballots. Now, we have no idea how that may change once we move into the later stages of early voting and on Election Day. But if that kind of margin continues, that kind of gap, uh, that, uh, it, first of all, tells us something about how, how uh, important it is for women to vote, but it also could give us some sense of uh, uh, what might ha- transpire, especially in the presidential race, yeah? I think so. I think it also says that women have made up their mind, so they have decided to go ahead and cast that vote, whereas perhaps there are men who are maybe still undecided and, and looking at the contest a little further. Um, you're right. If women are turning out um, in record numbers uh, ahead of men in this early voting, it could be a sign, um, if we talk about the gender gap, that the Democrats, especially Biden, may be doing well in the state. It also could be, too, that some Republican women, again, have already decided that they want to they have their decision made and they're out voting as well. We don't know exactly, of course, who they are casting the ballot for. All right, let's uh, move on to uh, some uh, some other news uh, about the elections right now. Jim Galloway, uh, I mentioned it in the uh, billboard for the show, the headlines for the show, and as we started, uh, there was an event in Dallas, Georgia yesterday where uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene gave her endorsement to uh, Senate candidate Kelly Leffler, uh, they drove up together, if you were to look at the video of it that's been put up on, on uh, Doug Richards, our friend from 11 Live, was over out there covering the event. You see Marjorie Taylor Greene campaigns in, a, in an army surplus Humvee, camouflage Humvee. We saw Kelly Leffler jump out of it uh, with her. And um, I want to talk about it, but before we talk about it, let's listen to just a little bit of the sound from that event. What impressed me with Kelly is I found out that she believes a lot of the same things that I believe. No one in Georgia cares about this QAnon business. This is a something that the fake news is going to continue to bring up and ignore Antifa. So, Jim, first we hear Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, Leffler, I was surprised and glad to learn how much she agrees with some of the things I do, and then Leffler says nobody cares about QAnon, it's all fake news. Um, it, this is an odd event, wasn't it? Uh, it, it was. Um, uh, two, two female candidates, two self-funding candidates to a large degree. Uh, 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 Green is, uh, is, is kind of the co-owner of a, a pretty good constru- uh, wealthy uh, construction firm. And... I will tell you, it, 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 this makes short-term sense if you think of it in terms of, of the fact that, that Doug Collins is Kelly Loeffler's chief rival. He's got a, 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 a kind of a, a North Georgia mountain-oriented base of support and uh, a support from Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in the northwest corner. That's, that's where the 14th sits. That, that, that kind of is, cracks that base. Uh, now, of course, Green has said nice things about Collins too, so we don't know how exactly how, how this how this will carry. Uh, but but short term, I think it's it's probably a smart move. Long term, uh, you know, I've been talking to some Democrats, and they're they're quite pleased by this because look, they're 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 assuming that Raphael Warnock is going to be uh, get a berth in that January five runoff. He's, he's as, as the Democrat, and th- this will give them this will give. 
uh, Democrats uh, an opening. They will hang Marjorie Taylor Greene around Leffler's neck. Uh, and I think that's when QAnon does become something that Georgia cares about. Yeah, Sam Olins, uh, we're used to candidates moving a little further to the right or the left in primaries to capture uh, the nominations in their parties. But when you move to the right and in doing so, uh, shake hands with somebody who's a supporter of QAnon and who actually tells people at the event, I was glad to learn that Kelly Leffler agrees with me on on, on things. Uh, it, it's hard to get back to the center uh, from the QAnon position, isn't it, Sam? So I think this is one of those really strange election years where no one is trying to get back to the center as we approach election day. I think folks like Karen Owen are going to have a lot of fun with studies after the vote is finalized uh, this year. Uh, I think the, the, the only place that I would potentially disagree with Jim Galloway on a little bit is historically Republicans have shown up in far greater numbers for runoffs. So, um, so while uh, Warnock is pleased with the announcement yesterday, the bigger issue is going to be who shows up in January to determine the winner of that Senate seat. So Karen? just to, to follow Sam's point there about the runoff, and research has shown that the individual who leads kind of going into the first round goes on to win the second round about 70% of the time. So if that race likely will be in a runoff and Warnock leads, the favor, you know, he has favorability of winning that. His, the odds are in his favor. However, I think if we look at Georgia specifically, when we've had these contests between a Democratic and Republican, we've seen that the Republicans have won over um, they've won all of those those six contests that we talked about no matter who was in the lead and so for Leffler at this point I think she is trying to find that very specific lane in the conservative way this endorsement is a way too that you've brought two female candidates together to talk to probably some of the Republican women voters who probably have seen the Doug Collins um, ad with his daughter which is changing their mind, thinking about his family relationship. And here you're bringing two women together to show a conversation um, of, you know, solidarity and support sometimes on some some similar issues. Uh, Yeah. Uh, uh, Just for listeners who – go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. No, um, Bill, I'm I'm not going to disagree with Sam or Karen on the in, on 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 the history of runoffs in Georgia. But there are two things I would point out. Number one is this is am, am, is this not the first time that we have pushed a runoff into 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 the the following year? Uh, there was an agreement that the reach when Karen Handel was Secretary of State, and uh, uh, that that the that the runoff period was extended in order to allow for for absentee ballots. So it's it gets into January when we're closer to to inauguration. A lot of this uh, and, and the dynam- a lot of the dynamics of a January five runoff is going to be shaped by who who wins the White House on November third. Uh, if you recall, I mean we had that we had that nineteen ninety two race. Uh, where Weish Fowler, the incumbent, a Democratic incumbent, was drawn into a to a uh, in, into a runoff with Paul Coverdell, and there there was a solid Republican backlash against Bill Clinton's elect- election in Georgia. Uh, Mike well, Thurman, please pick up on this. Go ahead. Well, first of all, I think uh, Kelly Leffler seeking and, and accepting the endorsement from Ms. Green speaks to the strength of Doug Collins and that he is bedeviling uh, the Leffler campaign and her supporters by his ability and his strength among the base of the Republican Party. And I see it as good politics, but in many ways it smacks of desperation because Doug Collins, along with the support of uh, Speaker Ralston, even though he's being outspent 10, 20, 30 to one is right there uh, at a point where he could actually win the runoff slot on the Republican side of the ledger. And so I'm thinking that internally people are looking at the polling data and they are showing the strength of Doug Collins 
And so this is an attempt somehow to mitigate or, or at least dilute some of the base uh, that he has. And I can tell you just back in the days when Democrats were in power, when you have a Speaker of the House and his House members supporting a statewide candidate, I'm just saying that candidate, in my mind, has an advantage against anyone who is seeking to generate that vote. So that's what you're really seeing. This is the strength of David Ralston, the speaker, support for Doug Collins. And it's, it's, it's paying off for Collins and it's creating problems for Leffler. I'm going to get Sam Olins in here, but just to make your point even uh, a little bit more specifically, uh, Mike Thurman, what you're suggesting is when House members, uh, uh, state House members support a a Doug Collins, they're talking to their own constituents in their own individual districts. That's a way to build voter support, uh, whereas uh, Kelly Leffler doesn't have that kind of uh, uh, specific uh, uh, ability to get into individual uh, state house or senate districts, um, among other things. Sam, you wanted to weigh in? Sure. Uh, uh, three quick things. One, uh, keep in mind Kelly does have the governor's support, which lessens the effect that uh, Mike was just stating with regard to the speaker. Uh, so both of them have a big character helping them. Secondly, the, the two reasons for the January vote are frankly because Georgia is one of the few states that requires that 50 plus one. And secondly, the nine-week minimum requirement to uh, follow federal law as it relates to uh, members of the military. So, you know, the question once again for for Georgia is do you want to change the law that, uh, for instance, permits a 40% as compared to a 50 plus one because I, I seriously doubt we're looking at a huge turnout January 5, no matter who is in it. So um, let me pick up on one more element of the runoff. And, and Jim Galloway, uh, uh, let me go to you with this. Um, we know it is true. Karen, you pointed it out. The person who usually is ahead in a, when a runoff is going to start uh, tends to win it. But, but Jim, and Republicans tend to have more strength in runoffs than Democrats in Georgia. But if, in fact, Raphael Warnock faces one of those uh, Republican candidates, we also uh, do we have what kind of uh, uh, stories do we have? What kind of background do we have in terms of when you have an African-American in a runoff ballot, how that might energize black voters to come out? Right, right. And and let me let me let me throw you in another curve. Uh, David Perdue has yet to get above 50 percent in any poll. And and yeah. I, you know I've I've got my I've got my I'm 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 rather skeptical about the Quinnipiac poll that we saw uh, midweek here, uh, but if if but uh, Shane Hazel the Libertarian is is pulling a solid two or three percent, if 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 neither Ossoff or or Purdue get that fifty percent plus one we could have two Senate races control of the Senate would would likely be in in in, uh, in play, and then you'd have all this money pouring into the state, driving that turnout. Um, and, all right, let's do this. Let's Go ahead. Go ahead, Sam. No, that, that was me and just having been in a statewide oh, go ahead, office, Michael. It was in a Democratic primary uh, against a white opponent. It, it really gets to the on-the-ground apparatus. Uh, one of the things that has to change between general and runoff is you're not really trying to convince anyone. You're just trying to get your votes to the polls. And that's what creates the challenge for Democrats. But we're in a world that's unprecedented, novel virus, no one knows. Uh, I agree with Jim Galloway. I, I think there's a real possibility that there will be two Senate runoffs on January 5th. Karen? No, I was just going to say, you know, he makes the point there on the ground game. And I think what we will see is the importance of if we have these two Senate races and the runoff, the senatorial committees will be pushing hard in the state of Georgia on that ground game. They will be sending and helping to get the message out to get people to return to the polls. And historically, Republicans have been pretty successful at that in this state. 
All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get to our first break in the show today. Uh, when we come back, I do want to ask uh, the panel to weigh in on the uh, competing town meetings last night, Trump on NBC and uh, Biden on ABC, what they made of those events and whether they had anything uh, to offer that might be a game changer. We'll talk about that and a lot more when Political Rewind continues after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway is with us. So is Michael Thurman, Sam Olins, and uh, uh, Karen Owen. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the town meetings last night. The uh, and, and you already know this, but let me set it up briefly. Uh, remember that when President Trump responded negatively to the debate commission saying they wanted the second debate to be done virtually because of Trump's diagnosis with COVID-19. The president rather quickly said he wouldn't do it that way. The Biden campaign, I think, very uh, cleverly took advantage of that to say, fine, there's not going to be a debate. And they went to ABC and said, let's do a town meeting on the date of the debate. ABC said, terrific. Uh, Then, very much in the last minute, NBC Uh, went to Trump and uh, agreed to do a town meeting with him. They scheduled it for the same time as the Biden town meeting. We don't know whether NBC caved into pressure from the White House to schedule it at that time or no other, but there was a lot of controversy in the media world about NBC kind of undercutting the Biden town meeting. All right, all of that played out, uh, but we then did have an opportunity to watch uh, if you switched back and forth, the two candidates uh, talking. Uh, we had Trump with Savannah Guthrie in Miami. We had uh, Biden with George Stephanopoulos in a studio uh, in in Washington, or I'm not quite sure where that studio was, to be quite honest. Let's do this and then talk about it. Here's a couple of sound bites. Trump first, uh, followed by Uh, Biden, and then we'll talk about what we all heard last night. I'm sure they'll ask you the white supremacy question. I denounce white supremacy. And frankly, you want to know something? I denounce Antifa and I denounce these people on the left that are burning down our cities that are run by Democrats who don't know what they're doing. While we're denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. What I do hear about it is they are very strongly against pedophilia. And I agree with that. I mean, I do agree with that. And I agree with it. But there's not a satanic. Uh, pedophile I have no idea. I know nothing you don't about know that. that? Okay. No, I don't know you that. Just and neither, this week, and neither do you know that. Okay. Just this week, you retweeted to your 87 million followers a conspiracy theory that Joe Biden orchestrated to have SEAL Team 6, the Navy SEAL Team 6, killed to cover up the, the fake death of bin Laden. Now, why would you send a lie like that to your followers? It. You Can retweeted it. That was a retweet. That was a, an opinion of somebody. But, and that was a retweet. I'll put it out there. People can decide for themselves. I don't the take president. a position. You're not like someone's crazy uncle. Your own FBI director says there is no evidence of widespread oh, really? fraud. Well, then he's not doing a very good job. If I'm elected president, you will not hear me race baiting. You'll not hear me dividing. You'll hear me trying to unify and unify with bring people together. When I said I was running because I wanted to unify the country, people said, well, there were the old days. We better be able to do it again. Great. We better be able to do it again. Galloway, tell us what you thought about the differences in tone, in content of those two town halls, and then we'll go around and get everybody in the picture. Uh, well, first of, first of all, no matter how you cut it, you could only watch half of it uh, as you were toggling back and forth, and 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 I, and I missed a lot. I, I didn't miss the 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 this the 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 Q and the the Savannah's Guthrie's uh, Q and on uh, session. Uh, Look, if if 
if you're running, if if you're trying to be uh, be presidential and you're faced with this QAnon stuff and and you can't deny it, it it's it's just like it's 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 actually even more ridiculous than white supremacy. I think if you can't deny that that de- Democrats are not uh, are not part of a, a satanic pedophile cult, then. Uh, then, then I think there are a lot of women voters out there who have trouble with you. Actually, I think you know. On on about by the way, I think uh, Biden was in Philadelphia with Stephanopoulos. Uh, uh, that's exactly uh, right. That's right. Thank you. Right, and and uh, that was by far that, that was by far a, a more low key event. But actually, I think it, it it played well. Look, I mean, there's there's I'm I'm uh, I'm watching the Twitter machine this morning, and you know, a lot of uh, I th- I think there was some some uh, maybe Trump criticized Biden as as coming off like Mister Rogers, uh, misspelling Mister Rogers, I think. But I think that's what people want right now. They want they want somebody in a sweater who's talking in a nice low voice, and 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 that's what Biden did last night. Sam, that does seem to be a part of the conversation that's becoming more and more prevalent as we move within two and a half weeks of the election. Uh, voters saying, we're tired of the noise. We're tired of the anger. We just want things uh, back to normal. And certainly last night, we saw the, the Trump behaving as he has for uh, three plus years and Biden uh, serving as uh, the much calmer uh, force. What do you make of all that, Sam? So first, I think Stephanopoulos acted like he was paid by the Biden campaign. He was Mr. Softball. Uh, and give credit to Savannah Guthrie. She, act, she acted like a good reporter and asked hard questions. So from a stylistic perspective, a home run for Savannah and an F for, uh, for George. Uh, I think, look, we all know Joe Biden style. We all know Donald Trump style. That's not going to change. Let's face it. Voters are choosing more. I respectfully submit on policy than they are personality. You know, one can talk about personality all you want, but I think at the end of the day, this is really a significant policy difference between the two candidates. And, and candidly, I don't think these debates, these shows move the needle. I think the folks that are on one camp stay on one camp, vice versa. Uh, I frankly wish we had more discussion on policies that matter to all Americans. Mike? Well, full disclosure, I'm a Joe Biden supporter, so let me preface my statement with that. I'm voting Joe. But, but let me step back and be somewhat objective. So at this point in time in the election, I really do believe at a minimum 95% of the voters have already made up their mind. Either you're for Trump or you're for Biden. However, I still continue to believe that there are people who make up their mind closer to election day or even on election day. So in these debates and town halls, what's often missed by candidates like myself is you're not at this point talking to your supporters, you're reaffirming them, encouraging them to go vote. But there is a segment of the population out there that might still be persuaded in a very close election. And in the polling that I'm studying and seeing, particularly in the swing states, the margin between Biden and, 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 and Trump is still relatively small. So, I would hope that candidates are smart enough to think about what can most or best uh, uh, have the greatest amount of influence over voters who haven't decided who they're going to vote for or who has not firmly firmly made up their mind. So to that extent, that's who and how we ought to evaluate candidates at this point in the election. Turn out your base, but really you're going after the undecideds. And what undecided voters thinking today. Karen, you want to jump in? Sure. So I would just say that last night you probably had relatively few people who were watching it live because they couldn't, as Jim mentioned, they're having to go back and forth. 
for most Americans, if they haven't already solidified their vote and know who they want to vote for, and they are undecided, they're probably listening this morning to sound bites, the clips of each one, and trying to determine if they are hearing of some substance. You know, I, I read a recent Pew Research report saying that over a quarter, like 26% of Americans get their news on YouTube. So if you're getting your news on YouTube, you're watching probably things at a different time and having a different reaction as if you're watching it live and seeing things. I would say, too, with just by watching both candidates, last night you got from President Trump his reality-style TV performance. That's what he likes, that forum of being on television. I think Sam is correct when he said that Savannah Guthrie did a great job of asking him some tough questions trying to get him to respond to things. Uh, when I watch and think about uh, Joe Biden and that town hall, it made me feel very much like I was in a classroom with my students, where it was very civil decorum, we're asking questions, getting responses. Now, I don't know how that would play off with a lot of undecided voters, but they probably are expecting two different styles, and they did see that. Um, Karen, the ball's in, while the ball's in your court, let me uh, ask you a little bit more. Uh, so uh, President Trump comes to the Macon Bibb Airport tonight uh, for a rally. He'll be there at 7 o'clock. I know GPB News will be covering it, and certainly the AJC will be as well. And um, we're uh, going to see uh, the president have another rally which are, where it's likely to have uh, lots of people gather together, many of them unmasked, uh, 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 not maintaining social distancing. Grant Blankenship of GPB News sent me a copy of the contract that the Trump campaign had to sign uh, for the venue, and it very specifically has a section which states uh, the rules of being in compliance with Governor Kemp's emergency order uh, six feet of separation between all persons, except on a transient or incidental basis, all persons required to wear facial coverings or masks, um, uh, and then other things, sanitizers, uh, and that sort of thing. And clearly, and, and so the, the Trump the limit, campaign limit, signed this document. And a limit of 50 people. Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to say, the, the governor's order. And that's and that, too, is in the contract. Um, I, so, all right. So, uh, Karen, we're not going to see that compliance uh, tonight. I don't know whether the governor is going to be there or not. I would imagine he, he certainly would be. But we'd, I don't know that for a fact yet. But the guy who put these rules in place may very well be there. It is possible, and I would assume, like you just said, that there's going to be some breaking of those contractual rules because individuals are going to show up. Now, you know, I have seen recently some of those uh, rallies where the people behind President Trump are in masks, um, and, and no, they're not socially distanced. They are closed, but of course, they also probably want to get on camera, many of them, right? It's an opportunity for that. I think last night the president did speak to the effect of that he's not opposed to people wearing masks. And I think it will fall back to those in Georgia wanting to be responsible citizens, right? If you want to attend this, you will maintain some distance. You will wear your mask. But it is a campaign rally. People are wanting to see him in many ways, and I'm sure they'll show up to see what he has to say. Uh, Mike and then Sam, one of the things that fascinates me this week is that uh, certainly the ace in the hole that Republicans uh, wanted to play with three weeks and less remaining until the election was the nomination of Amy, Amy Coney Barrett uh, to fill that uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. And certainly that is red meat for conservative uh, voters who want the court to move to the right. But, but, Mike, I'll give you a chance at this, and then you, Sam. Uh, even with the hearings unfolding this week, uh, and in fact a vote in the Judiciary Committee uh, upon us, uh, it were, it, it, COVID-19 continues to dominate the presidential election conversation. Michael, they, the Trump uh, folks can't escape it. Well, Bill, you know, each time you've invited me on, at least since the pandemic started, it's been my position 
that COVID has fundamentally changed uh, this nation, really the world, and it's changed uh, politics, uh, particularly as to how people view uh, their leaders. And ultimately, it will be the deciding factor on November 3rd, not just in the presidential election, but elections up and down the ballot. And so to that extent, um, the challenge for Republicans is that they have, in many ways, not evidence uh, through President Trump, a strong plan or strategy or even acknowledgement of the seriousness of the disease. Uh, but clearly, uh, COVID-19 will be the defining moment uh, for this country. It's 9-11 is uh, how it changed, how we uh, uh, boarded and, and flew on airplanes. This is changing how America looks at politicians. Now, one of the things I am concerned about, though, is that they are citizens who are more concerned about COVID-19 than they are about politics and politicians. And I don't think uh, the writers and maybe even some of the posters are picking up on that, that people are in crisis. Uh, they don't have food on the table. Uh, the unemployment is spreading and growing the fear and anxiety associated with it. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that there are segments of our population who, quite frankly, may, just may not have the time or energy to focus in on what politics and politics are doing in our state and across this nation. And we all should be concerned about that. It's just that serious. People are fighting for their lives. And they're not really caring about Trump or Biden. They're concerned about their lives, and they are concerned as to who might help me get food on the table for my family and my children. Sam, pick up on, on whether first you think COVID is going to be the key issue moving forward. And then if you want, uh, remark on what um, Michael just said. So I'm going to answer in the opposite order with due respect. Uh, I agree with Michael that many Americans are hurting. Many Americans are concerned about their jobs, food. Uh, and I think politicians and pundits pay, pay way too much time on issues like uh, the hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and not what, once again, Americans are most concerned about. I'm not convinced, though, that while I'm convinced COVID is a major issue this election, I'm not convinced that it has an appreciable effect on the outcome of the November 3 election. You know, as we look once again, for instance, at Europe having a huge uptick, I think more and more Americans, frankly, have the perspective that this virus is just frankly hard to deal with and that with the best of effort by the brightest minds in our country, there may not be much improvement until there is uh, a vaccine. So in some ways, I think having everyone pay attention to COVID-19 and not pay attention to some of the issues that the politicians and pundits keep talking about may actually help the president. All right, Sam Owens, you get the last word on that segment. we got to get to a break. We're going to come back in just a moment with more on Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, uh, your colleague Tia Mitchell filed a uh, piece in the AJC with this lead. Democratic candidates in Georgia's most competitive federal races outpaced their Republican opponents in fundraising, in fundraising last quarter. The pattern was evident in both U.S. Senate contests as well as two hotly contested House battles. We've just come to the end of another reporting period, quarterly reporting period. And, and this, by the way, is the last reporting period before uh, the November 3rd election. Jim, uh, that's fascinating. Uh, John Ossoff is reporting that his fundraising for the quarter broke a state record. He raised $21.3 million. He's got $8.3 million cash on hand. Meanwhile, David Perdue, his opponent, raised about $5.6 million. Uh, interestingly enough, he's got about just about the same amount of money cash on hand, eight plus million that Asov does. But nevertheless, what does this tell us about uh, the strength of Democratic uh, candidates in this election cycle or Asov specifically? 
Yeah, well, what's, what's odd is, you know, look, even Ossoff's take, 20, 21 million, it pales uh, when, it, when you compare it to, to, to uh, Jamie Harrison over in, over in South Carolina. I think his number was yeah. 37 million. Yeah. You know, it, it, tells yeah. You, yeah. It, it tells you that there is a uh, – look, and, 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 and part of this is, is Ossoff's uh, work that he did in the 2017 campaign. But but he and and Stacey Abrams and and uh, and uh, maybe maybe Gillum in Florida and and Beto O'Rourke in te- Texas they kind of de- developed a new kind of of fundraising uh, they they erased that line be- the 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 boundary between the, the state and national fundraising and and I think that's really paying off paying dividends right now uh, I mean even you even had Mitch McConnell complaining that that. That Republicans had nothing to match this. Uh, it, these, these are small donors. These are small donors that are making cumulative large, large contrib- uh, uh, large, large sums. Yeah, um, going to the other Senate race, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, uh, raised uh, twelve point eight million dollars. He's got six and a half million in cash on hand, money he can spend for ads and whatever. Leffler raised about $2 million, which, of course, doesn't matter because she can write a $20 million. She said she'd spend $20 million of her own money uh, to win this race, nevertheless. So I don't know. We, it's hard to know how aggressive her uh, fundraising may be uh, because of that. But at the same time, Doug Collins only raised about $2.3 million compared to the 12.8 of Raphael uh, uh, Warnock. Um, what do you make of, of of those figures in that Senate race number two, Sam? Well, you know, candidly, I think that unless you also take into account all the PAC money and the other different uh, independent expenditure funds, it really doesn't give a full picture. Uh, I, for instance, see more commercials for Ossoff and Purdue on TV individual campaigns. I I candidly don't take much from their individual campaign numbers. Uh, I think folks are clearly engaged. That's always positive. An engaged electorate is the best electorate. Um, But I I think nowadays, especially with social media, too much emphasis is spent on dollars. But, But, okay, so let me turn to you, the political scientist on the panel today, Karen. Uh, Does the amount of money that a, this is a very subjective question, does, does a, a candidate's ability to raise significant amounts of money or not be able to raise it, is that in effect a version of a different kind of voting for that candidate and that candidate's future? So I think we know through political science research and others that money matters in a campaign and the significance of the money raised and the money expended is that you show you have support and momentum. So, yeah, it could be akin to like voting for that candidate. However, we also know that the more money in a cycle, you have diminishing returns. That money is conditioned and limited on the effect that it has. So Jim mentioned the 2017 Ossoff handle contest for the 6th District. You know, he raised over $20 million, had 30 or over, oh, close to $30 million, I believe. That contest was somewhere near $60 million, and yet he didn't move his vote margin from the primary to that runoff. And I think that what we see for the Democrats right now is they are very good at nationalizing campaigns. So voters in California, New York, Illinois, across this country are keenly aware of Senate races, House races, and other states that can provide that edge for them to take the majority. Republicans haven't tapped into that as much on that nationalization. They seem to be defending against that Democratic discussion of nationalized politics, and they try to do focus much more on raising money from within their state, from within that district. And I think, you know, you mentioned Collins Leffler, and they both raised about the same amount, but she right now holds the seat. She's the incumbent, so she should be able to tap in to more PAC money and other types of funding. And yet she came out equal pretty much with Collins, which to me suggests, and I think other political scientists would say this, is that he's gaining some momentum on her. 
and is actually showing some more support and can show that through that money raised. Michael, um, the uh, the Democratic ability to raise money this cycle certainly has a lot to do with having they have really become passionate about uh, getting out there and raising as much money as possible in response to the Trump presidency on all levels of campaigning. Right. Absolutely. Nothing uh, energizes and solidifies Democratic uh, voters more than Donald Trump. And one of the things, and Jim and the professor and, and Sam all mentioned it, Senate races and even to some certain congressional races, they're all national races. These are not Georgia races. These are national campaigns. And consequently, they're being funded at the national level. Uh, Mr. Harrison, who's a friend of mine over in South Carolina, uh, no one believes he actually raised $79 million in South Carolina. Uh, that's about Lindsey Graham. And one of the things Trump has, I think, hurt the Republican brand is that he's put a bullseye on the back of some of these senators, like more than what it would normally be because of the Trump and Trumpism. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge for Purdue in Georgia because he is one of the closest lieutenants to Donald Trump. And consequently, that spurred, I think, investment in Ossoff, and Ossoff has been using that and running a good race as a result of it. But all of this goes back. It's a referendum on Donald Trump. Hey, um, Bill, Jim? if I could jump in, and I just want to emphasize something that Karen just said uh, about uh, about uh, Doug Collins and, and raising that $2 million. Two million dollars. I I think it is a show of strength, but and 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 this is this is this is why usually contributions are considered kind of a vote, but this one has a, is a little bit more. This is a vote that will be on record forever and ever. And you've got a governor who possibly still has you know a good five years of 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 sitting in the governor's mansion right now. So so it's it's a that it's a that's a pretty big bet to make. Karen, I'm going to give you, give you the last word before we have to end the show. Well, I was just going to quickly say that when we have this massive amount of money going into the election, so for the Democratic side, when you have multiple million dollars, it also re-energizes and tells the Republicans that the Democrats have a lot going on. So it does push out sometimes more turnout in an opposing way that you hadn't thought about. All right. That is the last word for today's Political Rewind. Karen Owen, thank you, as always, for joining us. Michael Thurmond, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Sam Olins, for taking time while you're on the road. We really appreciate your being with us as well. Jim Galloway, you'll be with me again on Monday. Um, By the way, we are now seven months into doing Political Rewind by remote. Oh, my goodness. We're back on Monday with another show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please get a flu shot. Bye-bye, everybody.